Hello, it's Thursday, November the 16th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Joining me today here in studio on the Stanford University campus, Russell Berman, a Hoover Institution Senior Fellow and the Walter A. Haas Professor in the Humanities at Stanford. Dr. Berman is a member of both the Department of German Studies and the Department of Comparative Literature at Stanford. He specializes in the study of German literary history and cultural politics, and that's the topic of this podcast, Making Sense of German Politics in 2017 and Beyond. Russell, good to see you on this rainy day. Thanks for inviting me, Bill. Happy to be here. On September 24th of this year, Angela Merkel won a fourth term as Chancellor of Germany. That's the good news for her. For her. Now here's the problem. Merkel's center-right CDU and its sister CSU had their share of the vote slashed. They received about 32.9% of vote in the election, Russell, down about 8.6% from the previous election. Germany's oldest party, the center-left SPD, which had been in a grand coalition, quote-unquote, with Merkel, was consigned to opposition. SPD received 20.5%, which was down about 5.2%. There was, however, a gainer and a big gainer in this election, and that was the hard-right alternative for Germany, AFD for short, which became the third largest group in the national parliament, the Bundestag, receiving 12.6% of the vote. That doesn't sound like much, but it's up 7.9% over the previous election. This is a very hard right, very angry party, Russell, and it brings to mind the quote from Otto von Bismarck, quote, an appeal to fear never finds an echo in German hearts. It would appear, though, there was an echo in this election. Russell Berman, what happened? Two things happened, Bill. Uh, one was that uh, Angela Merkel ended up being much less a, um, a magnet for votes than people thought she would be. She did win the election, but as you've noted, uh, an extraordinary drop in the vote for the Conservative Party. They're down in, they, they have not had a defeat of this magnitude since the very early days of the German, uh, of the Federal Republic. At the same time, you have the rise of the far right, and now there is the representation in the parliament, in the Bundestag, by a party to the right of the conservatives. Uh, this is also unheard of in the history of the Federal Republic. It's a splinter party that in, was initially merely an anti-European Union party, but it moved very quickly and became an anti-immigrant party. That's the core of its platform. Uh, otherwise, it represents diverse positions. But this is the big change. What we've had in France in the National Front for a long time, now we have in Germany as well. That's a very different Europe. The leader of the AFD, Russell, uh, what the Germans, I guess, call Spitzenkandidat. I hope I didn't butcher my German, but I think Spitzenkandidat is the phrase. A gentleman named Alexander Galland, 76 years old. He said this during the election, quote, we have the right to be proud of our soldiers' achievements in two world wars. That doesn't sound like something that would play very well with the German electorate that struggles at all times with its 20th century history. How can he get away with saying something like that? Well, in Germany, as in other European countries, there's a... Um, fraught relationship with to national identity and to the national past. It's particularly fraught, of course, in Germany with its history from the Second World War. Uh, but the notion of a positive embracing of nation nationhood is a difficult one in Europe and, frankly, for many in the United States as well. Let me take a knee right here. Mm -hmm. uh, can people, can citizens identify positively with their nations? Germans ask that as well. Now, uh, the AFD got... Uh, north of 10% of the votes. Uh, significant minority, but still a minority. The vast uh, spectrum of the German electorate rejects that kind of um, 
that kind of um, ultra-nationalism. All right. Uh, Merkel, during the election, said this, quote, whistles and heckling certainly won't do anything to shape the future of Germany. Was her candidacy, Russell, was her success based upon the public's familiarity with her? Was it as simple as trust? Was she, by saying these words, saying that, look it, let's be practical about this election. This is not a path we want to go. What was the appeal that Merkel had in this election, given how we've seen the familiarity has become a problem in other nations in 2016 or 2017? Well, the quotation that you just mentioned, she that, that comes from an event in uh, one of the new provinces, that is the former East Germany, where she was booed by right. the uh, by representatives of the Alternative for Germany, and she was dismissing the hecklers, effectively saying that uh, that uh, that that she would continue to lead, and she is continuing to lead. Uh, she was adulated by the Germans as Mutti, as Mama, as uh, the, uh, the the sign of stability. And Germans are this surprises no one. Relatively conservative in their habits, therefore they're hap- they would have been happy to to, uh, vote for a chancellor into a fourth term. But there was Angela Merkel's immigration policy, her um, opening the borders to refugees from Syria above all, but not only, uh, in 2015, and all of a sudden um, uh, enormous numbers of um, refugees came in uncontrolled. I think what the Germans responded with was a mixture of Anxiety about foreigners, call it xenophobia if you like, but even more, and this is probably very German, a sense that the state was losing control. Uh, not only an objection to the foreigners, but an objection to a vision of the state no longer being able to enforce the laws. All right. Uh, this is Thursday, November the 16th, and as we are having this conversation here on the Stanford campus, uh, thousands of miles away on the other side of the world, Frau Merkel is trying to form a government, and it's not been very easy. Russell, what is a Jamaica coalition? Well, in Germany, there's this convention of associating each of the parties with a particular color. Right. Uh, the uh, conservatives are black. This mm-hmm. comes from the clerical, from the Roman Catholic uh, legacy. The um, the Social Democrats are, of course, red. Uh, the uh, uh, the, the uh, liberal party, the FDP, is yellow, which is not an indication of cowardice, but is drawn from the German flag. Uh, the greens are green, comes no surprise. There's uh, another far-left party, which is also red. So there's a competition between the two reds. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jamaica coalition would be a coalition of the blacks, of the greens, and the yellows. And this happens to be, I am told, the colors of the Jamaica flag. And Germans who are yearning for that Caribbean uh, climate uh, have designated this political outcome as Jamaican. You've just demonstrated that you are not a bobsledder. <laughs> uh, Let's walk through the principles here, Russell. You tell me what each one sitting at the table wants. First, let's start with blacks, the conservatives. What do the conservatives want? Uh, this is a question worthy of Freud. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the conservatives, of course, want um, um, their pro-European continued stability. They do not, do not want a rejection of Merkel's immigration policy, but they want to um, um, reduce its, uh, its magnitude. Uh, more on that perhaps later. Mm-hmm. The conservatives are split between the general conservatives, the CDU, and the Bavarian sister party, the CSU, which tends to be more conservative. And of course, Bavaria was in the front line of the arrival of the refugees. So it's there that uh, the anti-refugee policy was strongest, and it is there that the AFD did, was one of the venues where the AFD did very well. 
robbing the CSU of its absolute majority in Bavaria for the first time ever, I think. So this is very dramatic. Um, conservatives want fiscal stability, um, continuity, Europe. All right. Uh, the liberals, the yellow portion of the coalition, what do the, what do the liberals want? The liberals are, um, one should think of them more as free market liberals rather than liberal in the cultural sense in the United, as in the United States. They want to have uh, tax cuts, mm -hmm. uh, which runs up against opposition within the conservatives. Mm -hmm. uh, they want to have... Um, uh, uh, technological development. They ran on a platform of um, uh, stronger education. And they're, they're supporting um, some uh, expansion of the um, refugee policy. They want to, uh, we're getting into the weeds now, but they want to enable those refugees who are in Germany now on a temporary basis to be able to bring in their relatives. All right, and then finally, the Greens, and I'm going to read to you a quote from the leader of the Green Party because this will be of interest to anybody here in the United States who drives a BMW, a Mercedes, an Audi, a Volkswagen. The Green Party leader said this, Russell, quote, the Greens won't enter any coalition that doesn't initiate the end of the combustion engine. That's right. So the Greens are the ecological party. They were uh, initially a splinter left party with a focus on, on the environment. Over the past couple of decades, they have moved to the center. And there are wings within the, the, uh, the Green Party as there are in the other parties. Some are more radical. Some are, in fact, quite conservative. Mm -hmm. uh, there are figures in the Green political spectrum who have, in fact, come out for a much more restrictive in, uh, uh, refugee policy. Uh, that's not the position of the party as a whole, but it's a party of some prominent figures. Uh, environmentalists, uh, uh, also uh, advocates of a certain kind of uh, civil libertarianism. They're the party that would uh, lead the fight against surveillance. Mm -hmm. Now, that anti-combustion engine mentality, is that, is, that, is that a pure philosophy or is that just driven by Volkswagen's diesel gate and the news of the moment? Uh, it's, uh, it's a... Um, metaphoric overstatement, mm -hmm. but uh, energy is indeed a big issue in Germany uh, because Angela Merkel decided to give up on uh, nuclear power somewhat peremptorily. Um, uh, and because of certain aspects of German cultural history, there's a particular focus on environment and nature, um, uh, there have been restrictive policies uh, uh, in Germany that have led to a significant increase in the cost of energy with damaging impact on the economy. I read in the news today that Siemens is uh, cutting 4,500 jobs, most of them in Germany, and most of this has to do with the crisis of the energy industry. Mm -hmm. Interesting. All right, so we're talking about a country in Europe. So for the U.S. listener of this podcast, Russell, explain why German politics matter if you're an American going about your average everyday activities. Well, Germany is the big, um, it's the big population center uh, in Germany, in Europe, excuse me. It's the big economy in Europe. Uh, and it's um, especially after Brexit, after the uh, departure of the U.K. from continental European politics, it's it it will define what Europe is about. Uh, the uh, the transatlantic alliance between the United States and West Germany, then Germany, has been a crucial feature of uh, stability in the uh, post-war and the post-Cold uh, War era. 
Germany, however, is positioned in Europe uh, in a way that it has always had strong ties to the East, to Russia in particular. Uh, even after the um, invasion of Ukraine, after the annexation of Crimea, it's a significant uh, part of uh, opinion-making Germany that uh, defined itself as the uh, putin Fasteya, the ones who would want to understand, effectively to apologize for Putin, mm -hmm. and would like to see Germany cast its lot more to the east than to the west. Um, that's geopolitics. Germany is between east and west. For the United States, there's a strategic advantage in having a Westpolitik, a Western orientation on the part of Germany. But Germany could play its cards differently. Give us a snapshot of Angela Merkel as a, as a leader. How has she changed going into her fourth term as Germany? As you've seen her mature on this job and learn from experience, sometimes successful, sometimes not, how does she differ between where she is now versus when she first started on this job? She was uh, an ambitious, uh, energetic politician who, with a smile on her face, could ruthlessly eliminate any competition within her party. Uh, so I... Uh, it's not clear who could replace her at this point. Uh, it's also the case that any party that entered into a coalition with her would suffer from that. Mm -hmm. uh, this happened to the liberals once, and it happened to the Social Democrats uh, most recently. She won. There's no doubt about that. But as we've mentioned, she won with an extraordinary loss in terms of uh, absolute votes. Right. Um, uh, a year or so ago, I wrote a piece uh, about uh, life after Merkel. Uh, and that was clearly premature because she's continuing to live into her fourth term. But people are now talking about her departure. It's uh, in the press. Uh, she's losing little battles here and there. Um, there's a political foundation associated with the conservatives where she would have normally appointed the next director and her candidate has been forced to withdraw. Someone else will take that. So these are signs of, of a leader whose power is dissipating. Does Germany have experience with the, with the lame duck phenomenon? Certainly in the United States, we experience this every eight years because presidents of late have tended to be reelected. The moment they're reelected, their stock decreases. Why? Because they're going to be out of office and within a few years. But does Germany have the, any parallel like that, Russell? Not exactly. A, 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 a chancellor in her second or third or fourth term is not necessarily a lame duck because mm -hmm. um, arithmetically she could continue, but she won't be able to because she's losing her political base even within the conservatives who are angry at her for the defeat. They're angry at her for the, for the electoral loss in particular because she's refusing to acknowledge it. Uh, uh, the day after the... Um, the, the election results came out. She was asked by a news reporter uh, w whether she takes responsibility for this, and she says she sees there's n there's nothing to talk about. Uh, so a kind of blindness to this uh, devastating result. Uh, she uh, lame duck. Uh, there's a. It's difficult in Germany for elections to take place before four years are up, but it's not impossible. And Gerhard Schröder, the former chancellor, uh, uh, has um, now indicated that he thinks there might be elections in 2018. Okay. I could show you a list, Russell, of Democrats uh, lining up to run against Donald Trump, and some serious, not so serious, but I could probably give you 12 to 20 names of 
people in the Democratic Party considering it. If Donald Trump, for some reason, were to decide not to run in 2020, I could probably provide you with at least a dozen Republicans who'd want to step in as of 2016 and run. But if Angela Merkel does recognize two years from now, four years from now, that her days are numbered and that it's in her best interest, the party's best interest for somebody to step in, who steps in? Who do you see on deck in, in German politics? Again, uh, there's there's no obvious standout candidates. Uh, I suppose the question will be whether it would be someone from the um, the old guard, like Wolfgang Schäuble, long-term finance minister, who has a lot of respect in Europe and uh, right. and in, in the United States as well, uh, as someone who knows the numbers, who's a budget hawk. Um, uh, if a budget hawk is what we want these days, big question. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are younger candidates as well. They haven't proven themselves yet as, uh, as uh, charismatic figures. Right. Uh, this is part of the, the, the Merkel effect. The, the opposition party, the far-right party, the alternative for Germany, uh, the reason why it has that name is because Merkel, with regard to the Euro policy, famously said, there is no alternative. She was seen as, she was experienced as an oppressive uh, uh, political figure, not allowing for, altern uh, for alternative positions. Now, the AFD has seized on that, and, uh, uh, but that's symptomatic of German political culture more broadly. All right, let's assume that she does get her government together and in working condition. Let's talk about some of the issues that face her in 2018. Number one, taxes. The... Um, the, the, the liberals are pushing for, for, for tax cuts. Uh, the conservatives will resist that. Uh, the Greens will want to have taxes that are um, um, tax cuts that are progressively structured. Mm -hmm. Okay. Issue two, immigration. Immigration is going to be tough. Uh, the, um, the Greens, as I already mentioned, want to uh, continue with, uh, if not a full open-door policy, they want to make sure that families can be reunited, even for refugees who are only temporarily in, in Germany. The, um, uh, the, the conservatives are going to be split because the CDU, the main party, will probably stick with Merkel, and the CSU won't do that because they know that it cost them that big AFD loss in Bavaria. Uh, one thing to bear in mind when we talk about immigration in Germany is that um, uh, the um, German generosity vis-a-vis -vis, uh, refugees is often contrasted here in the American press with uh, what's regarded as an excessively restrictive policy proposed by the Trump administration with the notion of building a wall in, uh, in Mexico. Um, so whether or not that wall is ever going to be built it's important to remember that Merkel, who at the one, at one point was opening the borders, uh, is also the one who cut a deal with uh, the with Erdogan, the leader of Turkey, right. in effect to establish a wall to prevent or to significantly constrict immigration flow from Turkey into into Europe. Okay. Topic three: climate change. There was just a big conference in Bonn. Former capital West Germany, California's governor was in attendance as was our former governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger, yeah. Austrian of some prominence. <laughs> uh, as I said before, energy is the flip side to climate change. Uh, these two uh, go hand in hand. Uh, it, the uh, political opinion is, is such in Germany that no one can oppose 
measures to uh, restrict uh, greenhouse gases, greenhouse gases. But uh, the the question is, to what degree? And the conservatives are going to want to go slow, and the um, the Greens are going to want to ban the combustion en uh, energy. Um, um, uh, going, going to ban and uh, restrict uh, energy uh, usage significantly and very quickly. Okay. Issue four, uh, that would be uh, the EU. The um, Germans, with the exception of the AFD, uh, will remain strong supporters of the EU. Uh, they're going to face difficulties because as the UK exits, political power within the EU and within EU voting mechanisms will shift to the south, will shift to France and to Italy and to Spain. Mm -hmm. And the southern Europeans are, <laughs> to say the least, not budget hawks. The... Um, this will play out in terms of the relationship between Berlin and Paris in particular. Okay. Uh, issue number five, 5A and 5B. 5A would be Donald Trump and 5B would be Vladimir Putin. Donald Trump is not particularly popular in Germany. Um, uh, Donald Trump's uh, energy policy in particular is seen as uh, a provocation to the to the Europeans uh, but um, I think the anxiety about Donald Trump is beginning to ratchet down some in Germany it's not to say that there's a uh, warm signs of warm affection but the um, animosity to to Trump was very oversold uh, he was presented as the uh, the new Hitler, and uh, it turns out that the United States has a, uh, a very robust system of checks and balances. Uh, it turns out that Trump himself has a pragmatic streak that mm -hmm. uh, may contradict some of his rhetoric. Uh, it turns out that what one says on the campaign trail is not exactly how one governs. Uh, this can't come as a surprise to many. Uh, so I don't see. Trump won't be beloved in Germany, but uh, he's, he's not, not just an eyesore. There was an important piece that was published in Germany and then actually translated and published in the New York Times by a group of um, uh, foreign policy thinkers in Germany, um, despite everything the United States. Uh, what that meant is that even though we, of course, object to what Donald Trump says and does, uh, Germany does not have an alternative to the transatlantic alliance, not a credible alternative to the transatlantic alliance. And when they say that, they are taking issue with the Putin Fashteya. They are taking issue with the Russophiles, who are a minority but nonetheless influential segment of German opinion. Is there a bit of a parallel with Reagan in this regard? I'm not comparing the two mm -hmm. men directly, but I remember as a young man after college traveling through Europe, and you would go into European city after European city, and what were then bookstores? There used to be a thing called books and bookstores. Mm -hmm. And you would see posters in the bookstores mocking Ronald Reagan as a cowboy. Uh, I remember in London seeing a mock-up of Gone with the Wind with Reagan holding Margaret Thatcher as Rhett Butler and Scarlett O'Hara. They viewed him as a cowboy and a dangerous cowboy at that. 
Sure, there's a parallel there. This would be um, part of the phenomenon of anti-Americanism in Europe about which I've written. Um, one should understand that the level of um, uh, cross-party animosity that takes place in the United States uh, is uh, broadcast into Europe. Mm -hmm. And what you can see sometimes in Germany is just an amplified version of what Democrats say about Republicans in the United States. Right. For some reason, it doesn't work the other direction, but leave that aside. Uh, the, um, uh, so, yes, all of the accusations about Trump here are played out there. Uh, I think it's just getting a little tired. Uh, and I also think that it's clear that while there are the Russophiles in the German uh, political uh, spectrum, there's a significant and important body of thought that understands that um, uh, Vladimir Putin is a problem. All right. Uh, and then Merkel's role on the world stage, not just Trump and Putin, but the world in general in this regard, Russell. Germany doesn't have the United States military clout or even the same economic clout, nor the economic clout as China. But Germany is not an expansionist country, unlike Russia and China, you can argue. And Germany, with its leader, Merkel has one thing which Trump does not. She has seniority on the world stage. She is a senior premise in eminence Greece. Will Merkel in 2018 and beyond be seen as something of a go-to person on world issues? While Germany cannot send in military forces, let's say, or flex economic muscle, that maybe Angela Merkel is looked to as a problem solver. Or am I just completely off base here? Oh, um... You're completely off base, but you've been misled there. Uh, as part of the anti-Trump meme, um, uh, the uh, the notion was circulated, I don't know, a year or so ago that now Angela Merkel will be the leader of the free world because mm -hmm. Donald Trump isn't worthy of that uh, of that uh, characterization. Uh, now, especially after this election, Merkel is significantly weakened. Uh, Merkel uh, will not be able to carry out any ambitious foreign policy, uh, even, in, even, a, even a, an international one. I don't see Germany being a leader, say, in the Middle East. Um, uh, I don't see Germany being a leader in uh, East Asia, surely not. Mm -hmm. uh, um, Germany is not an expansionist power in, uh, in any traditional sense. Germany is, of course, a trade giant. Right. And that's a different kind of expansionism. And this is, uh, in a sense, the criticism that the Greeks made of uh, Germany. And in a sense, it's the criticism that Donald Trump has made of Germany. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, what is free trade? What is fair trade? And um, you could bring the Greeks and Trump and Merkel to a table and not come to any consensus. Now, getting back to who she is, Russell, and the difficult hand she's been dealt after this election, would she want to be the world leader if she had the opportunity to be? Because it seems to me, seems to me she has a lot of thorny problems to deal with at home. I don't think she wants to be world leader. Uh, uh, as you've pointed out, she does not have the uh, the infrastructure, the military infrastructure, to be, to be a world leader. Right. Uh, the only possible path to a Angela Merkel world leader outcome would be if she were to decide that this is the way for her to run away from domestic problems. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't, this, this does not sound right to me. I, I think she's going to have her hands full trying to manage a coalition marked by extraordinary internal tensions uh, and by some effort to, um, um, what, uh, repair the damage that she has done to her own imminent legacy. Right. 
Now, you were kind enough to come on this podcast earlier this year and talk about the results in French, Macron's victory in France. You've had a chance now throughout 2017 to absorb the nationalist movement in Europe to see what the countries are doing in terms of their votes. Russell Berman, if you were writing your Christmas card on European politics for 2017, tell me a bit about what you would tell the family as to what happened in Europe in 2017. I think that an era of... um uh, optimism about uh, European integration has come to an end. Mm-hmm. Uh, this doesn't mean that the EU is over, uh, but it may mean that there's a recognition that there's been some overreach uh, in the um, geographical scope and in the um, uh, policy depth that the uh, EU and its attendant uh, associations have, uh, have, have pursued. Um, what one also sees is a reappearance uh, of um, issues of national identity. Uh, uh, there are extreme versions of it, like the one you mentioned before with the AFD, but uh, I don't think there's any reason to cede the notion of national identity to its most extreme proponents. Uh, the um, in the American sense, liberal notion that all nationality is going to dissolve into um, what some call, sometimes call bizarrely global citizenship, um, I think that's come to an end. Uh, I say bizarre because I don't know of any election in which I, as a citizen, would vote globally. Uh, I vote in local elections right. and state elections and national elections, and I'm a citizen here, and others are citizens elsewhere, and people whose circumstances are such that they have citizenship nowhere are in a really tough spot. It's better to be a citizen of a nation than not to have citizenship. Okay, let's talk a little bit about what awaits Europe in 2018. What are you looking at over the next calendar year? One, how Brexit plays out. Two, what kind of stability the Jamaica coalition can achieve in Germany. Mm -hmm. Three, um, uh, tensions between Berlin and Paris about alternative visions of the of the EU. Mm-hmm. Uh, four, um, the um, potential civil war or dissolution in Spain. Uh, and five, the uh, relationship of what Donald Rumsfeld once called the New Europe. So Poland, uh, Poland, Hungary, uh, Czech Republic, Slovakia, to uh, the core Europe, to Germany and France. Uh, this has become a point of uh, enormous irritation. The, um, the new Europeans, the Poles, see uh, Brussels as imperious and um, uh, hostile to any notion of national culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brussels and its attendant culture industry denounce the Poles as uh, retrograde um, uh, neo-fascists. All right. Uh, me being a selfish American, prioritize for me what I should be most concerned out of that list for, for what happens in Europe next year. What's going to impact me the most? Uh, the, the Brexit question, because of its impact on the international economy, mm-hmm. uh, unless they come up with uh, some good resolution that allows for continued and relatively unimpaired trade between the United Kingdom and the EU, uh, there will be significant repercussions in terms of um, the international economy. Uh, and I think the Eastern Front, uh, the, um, the question of, uh, of Poland, the question of Hungary, uh, the political developments there 
torn between uh, the um, imperious liberalism of the European Union and the um, the um, threatening authoritarianism of uh, of Russia. Uh, there's a, there are crises waiting to happen there. Um, that crisis actually may well play out not in Poland but in um, Southeast Europe. Uh, the uh, the, uh, the Balkans um, are a gift to keep on giving. And uh, if Putin were going to make another grab, it might well be in the around Serbia uh, rather than around uh, that was uh, Lithuania. Going be, that was going to be my next question. You had not mentioned the Balkans during your list of European concerns. So you think that Putin putting a move on in Estonia or Lithuania or Latvia, you, it sounds like you're suggesting that's a little bit of an overrated concern. I, I've had that concern, and I think uh, it's there, there's no doubt that he may well um, uh, try to be disruptive there. But in terms of uh, a development like we've seen in the eastern Ukraine, I think it might be more likely in the Balkans than in um, than in the Baltics. Well, he would be provocating NATO members for one. So. That's right. So that's that's right. All right. This is a Donald Trump-related podcast, Russell. So what does Donald Trump do vis-a-vis Europe in 2018? You're advising the president. Should he be traveling to Europe? Should he be talking more often to European leaders? Should he stay out of European affairs and focus on his own business? What, what is the best course for Trump in year two? He should continue to insist on European contribution to its own security needs. Uh, that's not a renunciation of NATO, and by any means, on the contrary, it's a strengthening of NATO. We He's made progress on that. I was going to say, we haven't heard much about that, but apparently there is progress, right? Well, the, the fair the, share argument. The, 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 right. the Germans have said they would, and we have to see it in the budget. The, uh, the, polls, the polls chip in their fair share, right? The, the, polls, the polls chip in their fair share. Right. Uh, the... Um, uh, I think the question for the American administration is to what extent does it want to provide leadership for Europe or for other parts of the world, for that matter, or to what extent is uh, Donald Trump in effect, and this is somewhat heretical, continuing the foreign policy agenda of his predecessor uh, in the sense of a um, gradual withdrawal of the American of, of uh, American power from around the world. Uh, Barack Obama was criticized um, uh, for, in effect, uh, withdrawing from the Middle East and um, turning away from Europe. He did this under the cover of the pivot to Asia, but he never really went to Asia. So it was a kind of um, this overstates it isolationism from the left. Is is Donald Trump, in a sense, giving us the isolationism from the right, and that's the continuity between the two administrations. All right, Russell, final question. You're looking at Europe after a rather complicated 2017. Your feelings toward Europe in 2018, are you an optimist or a pessimist? Gee, uh, is, are there more choices than that? No, are, you, are you bullish or bearish on the leadership, on their ability to come together and come to grips with some complicated matters? Do you think they can solve their differences? I'll, I'll punt and say that I waver between bearish and very bearish. Uh, I, I, I don't see strong leadership at this point. Uh, 
uh, uh, Merkel's weakened. May is not pulling off Brexit. Uh, mm -hmm. The uh, the Spanish response to Catalonia has been clumsy. Uh, the and uh, and Macron is turning out to be more of an empty suit than people thought. Okay, that tells me one thing. You're going to have to come back on the podcast, or we're going to have to talk about Europe yet again. I'd be happy to. Russell Bourbon, thanks for coming on Area 45. My pleasure. You've been listening to Area 5 of, of Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States, and in this conversation, the 8th Chancellor of Post-War Germany. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, spread the word. Please tell your friends all about us. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. And while you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Russell Berman and his Hoover colleagues to your inbox every workday. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hooverinst. That's at H-O-O-V-E-R-I-N-S-T. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. We're going to be talking to a Hoover fellow about his role in the Kennedy assassination. You don't want to miss that. Until then, take care. As always, thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.